You're listening to Don't Mind the Gap, the future of real estate investing. My name is Emra Al-Kurri and I will be your host in this podcast series where we will meet world-class real estate professionals and get insights into the tech side of real estate. We will learn how to combine traditional knowledge with new ways to develop real estate and invest in it. Thank you for all the feedback since the launch of this podcast. If you're looking for investment opportunities or if you have a business proposal, don't hesitate to send me a message and I'll refer you to each other. In this episode, I'm meeting Carl Christensen, co-founder of Spacemaker, one of the world's hottest real estate tech companies focused on designing better cities with artificial intelligence. We will learn about their journey, how they started from scratch in 2016, up until today with a recent 25 million US dollar investment for Series A and many well-known venture capitalists looking for cooperation. Carl will share what he's learned so far and what skills you need to succeed as an entrepreneur. He'll also explain why you shouldn't start a business alone, what their carefully chosen VCs are helping them with, and a little bit more about the Spacemaker business model and future plans. Enjoy. Hi, Carl, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you please tell us about yourself and Spacemaker? Sure. So I'm a computer science engineer, and I'm 37 years old. I did my thesis on neural networks, what we now call machine learning, uh, back in 2005 in Stockholm. And I also did business degree uh, back then, um, because I've always been interested in and passionate about value creation in tech. So I consider myself an engineer. But I also consider myself a product person. I've also been passionate about building digital products for people. So I spent my career until I started Spacemaker building digital products and digital product teams. So I've been working a lot with the connection between tech and business and people, but also in the art of building product teams and and digital products. So Spacemaker Mm -hmm. is about designing better cities. So we believe that we need a fundamentally different approach for tackling the incredible rapid urban growth and also galloping climate change in cities. In the coming decades, we'll need to build an urban area the size of Paris each week. And at the same time, we need to improve the quality of life for city dwellers and also do this in a sustainable way. So we need to build far more sustainably. And for us, that means creating great cities today with great living qualities without sacrificing tomorrow, Hmm. basically. And we consider ourselves a sustainability company But in order to succeed, we need to create value for all stakeholders. So we think and we know that that is possible. So we make everybody winners, real estate developers, architects, residents. That sounds fantastic. Um, Can you please tell us how you came up with the idea? Well, it started with a pain, as it always does. Howard, um, which is one of my co-founders, he's an architect and he's been working in early stage real estate development. And he felt that the manual process that they were in didn't really support the outcomes that they were seeking and the needs of the different stakeholders, the real estate developers, the municipalities, the, the residents. It was a really, really hard, complex problem. And they were working manually, even though they had digital tools like BIM tools and analytics, and it didn't really inform them. And they didn't ever have the confidence that they actually found the best solution. If they find a new solution, they usually could find something better if they spent more time, but it took so much time. So he wondered if it was a way to do it more effectively with computers. So he contacted a friend of his, Anders, which is the third co-founder, and he in turn contacted me. And so Anders is a management consultant uh, with a strong business development uh, sense. And we came together and started discussing this. And when I started analyzing uh, the construction or, and real estate industry, I was surprised to see how undigital it was. 
I've never seen. Welcome to this world. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've never seen an industry that is so uh, undigital. Basically, for me, digital does not mean that you use Excel. It means that you have processes mm -hmm. that connect to each other to create digital value. That's what I've been working with, right? So when I saw that this was not the case, it was very surprising. But I also realized that just helping kind of the problem that Howard was seeing, just helping that with with a program or a product would not really affect the decision-making processes and create deep value because you already had like generative tools that architects used, for example, that could compute things. But that didn't really change the process and, and change decision-making. And to do that, you have to work much more fundamentally and create confidence and transparency and information for all the stakeholders. And that's where we kind of came up with the concept of building a basically digital platform for real estate development. Mm -hmm. And that to do that, you needed to solve a huge amount of problems to create this kind of information transparency. Uh, you need to calculate basically everything and make it fit together to give you all this knowledge. If we look at your customer side today, is it mainly uh, real estate developers or also other parts of the industry? At the moment, at least, it's primarily real estate developers. And that's because they own the projects. And we see the finding the, the best solutions to a project as a kind of collaboration effort between stakeholders, where real estate developers, they kind of coordinate the project, they own the project, so they can inject it into the process and provide it to all the stakeholders, including architects, which are big users, in the process and also engineers and it also involves in many cases municipalities mm. okay interesting can you take us through how your product works yeah i'll try to be uh, brief if i can mm. we kind of just to, to uh, explain the capabilities this is a web-based software as a service tool and we kind of divide the capabilities into three first of all you get digital data sources and models we import all the available data in the place your app but you can also add data if you know that something is if you have more information than, for example, the local government has about the area. Um, and you can also manage your own proposal drawings, the decisions that's being made throughout the process. So that's kind of keeping having the digital project model kind of under control. And then a really big part is decision support. So we give you instant access to analytics and insight of, of basically every aspect you could dream of, from the kind of basics of the geometry to the apartment sizes, sellable square area, noise, wind, daylight, all of the, these different properties, outdoor qualities, about a hundred different analysis that run every time you do anything to give you complete understanding of the consequences of everything, basically. It gives you the possibility to assess and understand a project very quickly, but it also gives you the power to assess the effect of changes and to change your mind mm. because you always get more information down the road. You can also do what-if analysis really easily. Mm. If we just pause there. Yeah. In the beginning, you mentioned the data inputs. I can imagine that there is a lot of data that is not easy to put in into a system. Yeah. Uh, maybe some old information or maybe some zoning plans, etc. Yeah. How does that work? How easy is it to put data in? Well, this is a typical key part of trying to design a product that is kind of scalable and, and it's not limited by outside complexities. We quickly realized that we, one of our earlier hypotheses, for example, was that we needed very detailed zoning into the software. And most people assume that we need to do that. But what we saw was that architects and, and real estate developers in projects generally kind of translate that into what it means already. So we focused on making it easy to enter kind of the, the constraints as they are shaped by the zoning. We could do that in the future to save some minutes of your time. But generally in a few minutes, you can kind of set what kind of heights are there, what kind of utilization, 
all these kind of general constraints yeah. and more specific ones. So we focus on importing around the world the data that's more complex to describe, like the terrain, the traffic, the wind conditions, noise conditions, things like that, and calculate a lot around them. So also, because a lot of these things of the data, at least about qualities like daylight or noise or wind, it's kind of a simulation of the world. Mm. We do a lot of those simulation ourselves. All right. Which takes me to my other question regarding the, the geographical differences, especially when it comes to regulations, etc. But your uh, product, obviously, is more connected to data that is basically international. Mm-hmm. How do you adapt that to the local market? That's also a good question. So while a lot of the usage of data and kind of the cultural way of building or doing real estate it differs, the fundamental nature of qualities remains the same. So even if you take a, a really kind of op- example of opposites, you care about a lot of sun in the Nordics, and you don't want sun, uh, maybe in Spain, and you care about heat, and heat the kind of distribution much more than you would in Nordics. But the underlying phenomenon is the same, you just use it for different purposes. Mm, that's a good answer. Yeah. Please continue on the yeah, product. So, yeah. So, yeah, so again, trying to, to be brief, <laughs> like I said, like the data models and, and the digital models, that's kind of a hygiene factor, but it's super valuable to the user. But the decision support, and the last leg is time exploration. So with just the system support, like with just the analysis, you would not necessarily be able to be, like you could have information, but as some of our customers say, you won't be informed. Like it could be the same as having 100 engineers giving you analysis. It's very hard to make a decision because it's still a game of trade-offs. Some people think that we kind of generate just a perfect real estate project, but anyone working with real estate would not accept that because it's always a combination of constraints and preferences. We need to give you the possibility to find those options that are feasible in the project, but give you the confidence that you've explored many of them and, and give you understanding of what happens if we go this way or this way. Mm. And to do that, we use AI, but at the same time, we want to keep you in control. So you can see we have kind of levels of how intrusive the AI should be. It's kind of giving you the ability to scale it back and forth, basically. So you can enter the preferences and constraints and just let us use massive cloud power to just generate thousands of alternatives. When you pull all this together, you get an amazing level of control and freedom at the same time. And that's what kind of moves the projects to maturity much faster. That's what we're trying to achieve. You can kind of, if you're just after kind of quick assessment of the site, you can get that in minutes. And if you want to make big decisions, you can spend more time and iterate and look at different alternatives and move kind of the whole team forward because they can discuss different aspects together. Yeah. If we look at your potential customers, many people are afraid of new softwares and new systems, especially when you use words as AI. It could be frightening to some people. What's the benefit if you're not a tech person? Because a large part of this industry is very traditional, as you know. That's a very good question. When we started, as I said, we never started as, we're not a tech-driven company. We're a value-driven company. So we never started with AI. It was a tool and a means. So we focus very hard on creating a product that is very accessible. And I actually don't think that real estate developers or anyone else need to be tech savvy or even tech focused. What I think you need to be be able to go into, kind of move into the future and, and, and succeed in the future, you need to be interested in change and adaptive to change and look for kind of change, even though it might be painful. <laughs> so we try to design a product that, that is easy to understand and easy to use but it requires you to be open to work differently, work much more data-driven, 
make decisions in a different way and be adaptive to or interested in changing your own processes to make that happen. And I think that like, anything that requires like in a real estate developer or anyone else to become kind of a really technical person will not kind of succeed in the long term because it's not their main job. It's not what they want to do. They want to create value through real estate or other processes. All right. Interesting. You recently raised uh, 25 million US dollars uh, in a Series A round. And among the investors, we find the Randall Ventures, a previous guest in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Can you please take us through your journey from an early startup to this stage? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned before, me and Howard and others came together. This was very late 2015. We started looking at it together. And we spent the better part of eight months analyzing the space, basically. So academic research factor into this and what other companies or startups were doing. And we basically found nothing on the academic side or in the startup side. And the understanding of this as a problem was not really established in the industry. Like people were acknowledged that it was really hard to create real estate, but they didn't see it as a solvable problem, yeah. basically. What we first did was that we, when we saw that we, we still really believed in this idea, um, was that we took four weeks off work to test the most important hypotheses. Mm. And those were around, if you could break down some of the most defining elements of designing a real estate project from an architectural perspective and quality perspective into math. Mm. Just a question there regarding those four weeks. Mm. Was that on a vacation period or were you transparent with your employer? Well, we were transparent, but we took it out as unpaid leave, basically. We quit our jobs and then the first thing we did was go for pilot customers. We didn't have anything except PowerPoint, but we were looking for customers that were interested in kind of the long game, right? because we, were, we had no idea how long it would take to build something. So we need to convince them that the long-term idea would create value for them and that they would be interested in kind of co-creating it. And then we looked for customers that had kind of looked from the outside to be kind of forward-leaning. So even though we have a very conservative industry, there's always players that maybe have, they talk about um, things in a different way. They might have a younger leadership a lot of change in their leadership that makes them more dynamic, for example. Yeah. We found those pretty fast. And we also found we were very conscious to not have just one. Mm. because Was this primarily in Norway? Yeah, we started with our kind of local connections. So the domain knowledge and kind of credibility that Howard had was really important. We could kind of base the examples we had, for example, on projects that were local that they knew about, that made it relatable to them. So that was important. And when we had, I think, four partners of this kind that had Really different profiles and we were sure that kind of building for them wouldn't mean that we built just for one type of company. We also started looking for funding, both from soft funding, from Research Council in Norway, and also uh, from uh, angel investors. And for the angel investors, it was really valuable for, uh, of course, to have ambitious companies as a business developer and, and a management consultant in kind of building a viable business plan. And uh, also for the research council, it also turned out to be really valuable to have these pilot customers that could kind of validate the business case. So we got both the soft funding and, and angel funding in the start of um, 2017. So we, we worked for kind of four months mm-hmm. on our, by ourselves. That's a quite short period for getting funded. Yeah, it is. What was the core, you think, in the idea, but also for you as a team that, that made it? I think we were able to create a, a very convincing narrative why is this a problem why will it be an increasing problem like the urban growth and where kind of this will be an increasing the, the kind of the market for this kind of solution will be exponentially increasing in the coming years basically 
And, and that there's, it's very easy to demonstrate that the industry has had no kind of productivity increase or digital development in the last 50 years. Mm. So it's also kind of easy to accept that there has to be some potential there, right? Mm. So if you think of risk and rewards, there's potential. Can you give us some numbers on the initial investment? It was pretty small. So the direct funding, the angel round, I think it was $300,000, something like that, that would fund us for kind of a year mm. with conservative efforts. <laughs> And with also some some employees, or at least one or two. But we also got a funding we got from the Research Council was huge in that sense, because it's actually designed for bigger companies, because we had a really clear business plan and a really kind of believable uh, set of the competence that, that me and Howard and others shared together had kind of all of the elements of mm. the ability to build a technology company, the ability to, to understand the domain, and the ability to build a business. Mm. So we were able to get a grant that was almost... $2 million in soft funding. Mm -hmm. When was that? That was in February 2017. Mm. So we were still kind of officially no employees, but we couldn't use those, that money ourselves. We could use it on researchers. So we hired researchers from the PhDs that had been working in different fields in Norway, like oil, and that had a very strong mathematical competence. Mm -hmm. And that also made it easier for the people we hired that we kind of had a team mm. already. So that was also super important for us. That sounds great. Yeah. Can you take us through the steps after that? We secured some kind of pilot, some pilot projects. Where this was, of course, no cure, no pain. But we kind of agreed on a price in advance. Like we, we never did anything free because we thought that that would, especially when you're kind of disrupting things, you need to validate by creating value. Mm. So you need them to actually uh, sign off on that. This we would actually pay for this. Otherwise, you're kind of creating something that you don't know. It's cool. It's really easy to create cool things, right? Mm. We need something that they'll be willing to pay for. So that was a crucial part of, of our strategy. And then we started uh, hiring some kind of, we looked for really brilliant, creative mathematical people, uh, not kind of people that were had really deep domain knowledge, really, but just were really kind of creative and innovative, but very mathematical. It also means that you can work with much younger people. That's easier to recruit in one way because it's kind of less expensive and they're less kind of entrenched, and kind of more open to experimenting has worked out very well for us because we're creating something completely new, even though it's based on a lot of previous knowledge. But we hired a couple of those and in 2017, early 2017. And by the summer, we delivered our first pilot project. So it could barely be called a product. It was really risky, but we coded like crazy in the taxi and on the way to the client meeting. And even though it was kind of really rickety, we could validate it in the way that it did create. They had a solution from before that they'd drawn, they worked on for a long time. And we could blow that away in terms of qualities. Like we, we found that you could build a lot more apartments and still have better outdoor spaces. All of the apartments would get better light, less noise, more daylight. Everything would be better, basically, alternative. And how do you charge? Do you charge based on an, on a software value or for the hours you put, or maybe even a, a percentage of what you deliver? Well, there's been a lot of kind of ideas about that. And I, you could say that we're still kind of developing the business model. But the business model that we're working with now is a, is a SaaS license model. And the reason for that is that there's so many uncertainties in real estate. So we would need to demonstrate value over time to kind of and go for a value-based pricing model, but we might do that in the future because we see that we create huge value. But what we see now is that when we look at real estate developers, they generally have kind of a pace of development. They have volume of funds and they also have a volume of employees that do kind of have a capacity to do a set of projects. So we kind of create soft-based recurring revenue licenses based on the volume that they use the software, basically. 
when we had this first kind of validation that we saw that we could actually create value, we started ramping up the product development part of it. So we, we hired all of that. Like we started with kind of mainly data scientists and me as kind of a hacking kind of glue to a product. And then we built kind of a more serious product team with, with designers and software engineers and kind of a more full-fledged team. And we also established a research office in Boston. Mm-hmm. How come? Uh, well, we saw that like, we came into contact with through the employees. We had that some of them have been had parts of their education in Boston. We came into contact with so many people that had so many ideas about how we could solve this, basically, because we need to invent so many things about how we describe the world and how we understand the world. And we found that they, there's a lot of that knowledge, but also that culture there. And also the academic institutions like Harvard and MIT are surprisingly open to startups, for example. So I was able to just go there and have really exciting meetings with a lot of different professors and faculty, and they, they opened their doors. And I actually, that was much easier, actually, than getting into talking to a professor in Norway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't have time. You're listening to Don't Mind the Gap, the future of real estate investing. If you have any tips on interesting guests or other inquiries, please send me an email to emro at don'tmindthegap.com or message me on LinkedIn. Thank you. We worked to create a, a self-service product because that's always been kind of our ambition. And we had the first version that we started selling as a recurring revenue product a little less than a year ago, like 10 months ago. We learned so much from that. We saw that we like we could demonstrate really repeatable, huge value, but also that there were so many kind of things that we could improve to make it even more scalable and even more easy to kind of create value with yourself. And that's super important for us to create a repeatable, scalable model, right? Even though this is really local, there are so many things that are the same in the core of how you do things. That's what we've been working with. And um, when we kind of saw that we were on the path to that, we thought it was the right time to take in more funding. And with the traction we had with customers and the value we created, it was thankfully very easy to get funding. Mm. At so what level was the valuation, uh, the, the post-money valuation that you had? I don't think we're supposed to comment on that officially, okay. but it's I think it's on a, the expected level of what a $25 million Series A would, would put you at, mm-hmm. to put it that way. But it's it basically, the VCs are in both Europe and, and the US, they seem to have kind of a, a shared grapevine so the or a common Slack channel, uh, maybe because we got a huge interest without really contacting anyone. So we never kind of reached out to a VC, but we had more than a hundred that took contact us, mm-hmm. uh, which made it possible for us to. How come that you they contacted you? Did you? We we actually still really don't know who they got that information from. Okay. So we spent a lot of time trying to find VCs that have this long term belief in what we're doing mm-hmm. because we don't want to sacrifice kind of long-term mission for a really short-term profit because there are so many ways we're going to monetize this faster than we're doing, yeah. basically, because we have a long game and we need to do this step-by-step step to kind of get there. Did you prioritize the VC competence or was the money part also? Of course, it's an important factor, but was it only that? Well, when you have this many, when you're lucky enough to have this kind of interest. Yeah, it's it, a great position here. Yeah, it's yeah. a great position. So, of course, if you need the money and you only have one option, you kind of need to take it, yeah. right? But it was important for us to have this kind of long-term focus and founder-friendly culture. And we saw that the investors that we found had a combination because, of course, they need to have no stuff that we don't write. So it's, of course, kind of a financial competence and, and business building competence, but also a lot of them have a lot of founders mm-hmm. in their teams that have both failed and succeeded. Mm-hmm. And we're already getting a lot of help from that also in, in terms of just having advisors. Mm-hmm. So it's actually... In our case, we're really getting actual tangible help 
from our investors. And but do you reach out to them when you have questions, or do you have like quarterly uh, updates? Oh, we do both. We do both. Like I'm very with specific hard questions that we kind of arrange for workshops, even. But it's been a pretty kind of agile situation where there's people that have built product or teams before that are like executives in residence, for example, with investors that come over here and help us for, with recruiting. I have a, a monthly call with the guys from Atomico that built the tech unicorn in the US. Uh, that's more of a technical and kind of how we build product teams, that kind of thing. Anders and Howard work with one of the guys from North Zone. We had kind of commercial questions and building sales teams, for example. Interesting. So your next step now will actually be focusing on growth and taking, not taking market shares, but rather getting into markets. Yes, we're both kind of working on growing market shares in the Nordics. And we've taken a lot of the Norwegian market, but we actually think that we that we didn't want to be a company that just grows kind of organically because we have larger ambitions. But we also saw the Nordic market is actually really attractive. <laughs> so in what way? Yeah. But it's they have a high activity and also actually higher digital maturity than many other countries. So even though I'm sure that many would think that markets or the industry in the Nordics is it's even more conservative other places. Yeah. <laughs> so we think it's a good place to find that, like to refine our repeatable business model. But we're looking at a lot of different markets for kind of the next tier, which will come probably in the start of next year. And there's a lot of exciting markets. One of them is actually France, because they have a lot of uh, large real estate players, real estate developers that are super interesting and that also have work in many countries. So that's at least a hypothesis, working hypothesis for Europe. So depending on how repeatable we see that our kind of scaling model is when we enter those markets, we'll start working more in parallel. What we don't want to do, and, and we're really supported by our investors in that, is to scale too fast. Because mm. this is not kind of an automatically, infinitely scalable idea. It creates a value, but it also creates uh, the need for change. And that needs to be implemented. Mm. And you need to kind of respect that when you go into a market. Mm. All right. Can you tell us what you've learned during this journey? Sure. One, I guess, is that a strong team with a shared vision can do uh, almost seemingly possible things. Mm. Are you referring to the core team of you three guys or you mean the larger context? Absolutely, the larger. Mm. I think that it's really important to be humble to the fact that in, in this world, in today's world, Thinking that you can solve something yourself as an entrepreneur is, I would say, go as far as call it foolish because the world is too complex. And if you have an idea that is that simple, <laughs> I'm not sure you'll kind of it, it's it's viable. So having a team that that works together to succeed is something that's super crucial. And to do that, you need to attract a strong team. You need to have a shared vision that they also believe in. So you need to believe in it yourself. That's also at least something I believe that. If you're just focused on actually like focused on just uh, making money and not kind of focused on creating like not being enthusiastic about creating the value, then you won't be able to attract the team mm. uh, because people want to believe in creating a value to others, not just kind of enriching the company. Mm. Maybe especially in today's world, with you mentioned the the young mathematicians, yeah. the value and maybe the sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I think that's uh, central to, and that's also what we as founders believe in, and that's something that you won't be able to kind of fake over time. Of course. So you need to be really transparent that you truly believe in that, and also that's what excited our investors, and that's why we knew we had the right investors, right? Mm. Because they believed in that too, and thought that it would be like started talking about how the world would look in ten years when it was kind of designed by SpaceMaker. So that kind of what you can achieve with that kind of team is something that I've been impressed by over and over again. It's it's incredible. I've also learned I need to be 
as an entrepreneur, you need to be an optimist, but deep disruption and adoption in the conservative industry take time. That's also something that I need to accept, even, even when you show incredible results and they see those. And I guess I can always also say that we believe and we still think that you can start a company with global ambitions anywhere. Um, as long as you have this great version, you can attract talent and funding and customers on a global scale. And that's, uh, of course, really cool to see. Mm. And I guess one thing as a kind of an engineer is, is that when you're aiming for these global problems, we also learned that you can sometimes kind of get surprised and almost miss the simple things, like just having control of like the, the sellable square area in, in the project. Mm. And some customers get really excited by that. Mm -hmm. And that's something kind of we see as as so simple. Mm. Um, and that's something that's important to kind of stay humble to that what creates value for customers might not be kind of the fancy stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Put yourself in the perspectives of, yes. of the developers in this Absolutely. context. Yeah. All right. If you'd start Spacemaker or another PropTech business or a tech business today, how would you do it? What would you do differently? I think I'm always learning. So I always think that things can be done better and differently. But I think that one of the ways that we started and built Spacemaker is not something I've, I've seen that we should have done differently. I think that it was the right thing to do. And that kind of goes back to, I guess what I just said, that the crucial element, if you want to create a, like a world-changing company, is that you realize that you can never walk alone or succeed by walking alone. So you need to realize that the world is too complex and fast changing to kind of be an individualist as an entrepreneur. So you, you need to understand that. I think that the future belongs to those kind of who collaborate and share knowledge and kind of create things together. So you need to build an amazing team of high performing people that has a shared vision, but also a, basically an obsession to create value for customers mm -hmm. and not for the company, because value that, that will come as a consequence of users and customers loving what you have. Mm. But speaking of the team, is it important for you, because you're basically three friends starting this, is that important or is it more important to, to have different competences? I think different competence, definitely. Mm. And that's, I guess, again, part of it being kind of thinking that you need to be a team. That's also about being a cross-functional or having cross-competencies and that when you put people together that know different things and they can come up with uh, amazing things together that they would not be able to do themselves because not one person can't have perfectly cover all of these areas. Mm. And also general experience. Um, I might be biased because I'm 37 and not 22, but I've actually seen after we started that research shows that companies started by people in their late 30s even in Silicon Valley, has a hugely higher chance of succeeding mm. than if you start a company at 22. Mm. And I guess that's just because having kind of both the humility of how hard it is to build companies, but also having more experience about company building mm. is really important when you start kind of going beyond like just the idea, mm. when you actually start to kind of the, the operational part, because building a company is super hard. You need a great idea, but you also need a great operational way of putting that to life, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I agree. Uh, I share the same vision there because, and then that's good information for young entrepreneurs to cooperate with more senior people, maybe. Yeah, I think, uh, and I know myself, and I've also, I've, I've coached a lot of people right out of school, and I realized that it's really hard to value experience when you don't have it. Mm -hmm. And it sounds just really annoying when people tell you, like, you, maybe you should take some years working in a company, learn some stuff, mm -hmm. and you think that you know everything already, all these guys are just old, yeah. but when you've got some experience yourself, you see that, then you start valuing it, right? Yeah. So I, I really think that's a good approach, yes, yeah. to, and that's, a, I guess, being humble both ways. Like I've seen, of course, that really young people can create 
incredible innovation, but you need to help them with giving them the context and kind of the frameworks for how that could kind of fit mm. with the problems that the industry sees. Yep. And that, that's where you can kind of get magic. Mm. If you start something else than SpaceMaker, what would you do? Uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm so consumed by SpaceMaker, so I'm not thinking about many other kind of companies, but I guess it would have to be something around sustainability and impact because with SpaceMaker, I think we're showing that you can be very sustainability centric, but also create huge commercial value. And you need to do both to be able to kind of create a really impactful company, in my view. Because so, today it's still seen partly as, as, a, as a cost only yeah. to be sustainable. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But it's also kind of, in many, many places, it's kind of an incurred sustainability on an existing business. I believe in the importance of sustainability over many other things. So I, I think that's not necessarily wrong. But I also think that I'm an optimist and a technology optimist and a kind of solution-oriented person. So this I want to work with kind of creating value and opportunity through the need for sustainability. Hmm. So there are so many places where that is possible, where you can take that problem and need or pain into something that if you have actually a solution, then we'll want that. But I, I fully respect all of those, both sustainability and impact-oriented companies that do this with only that focus. Hmm. But I don't think it's it will be that kind of requires the kind of good nature and kind of needs to survive basically in goodwill. Hmm. But a company over time can succeed uh, doing that. You need to create value to some customers. Need to feel their immediate value. Sounds like you're in the right position. I think I'm, uh, I'll I'll stay where I'm at for a while. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What companies are cutting edge in the prop tech industry, according to you? Hard question. Uh, first of all, it's I guess the the concept of prop tech is really wide, right? It's it's everything from fintech to contact, mm. and I guess we're a little bit in between that even in kind of planning and recently designing uh, release. So it's, I think it's hard to pin down. And I really appreciate there are a lot of great companies kind of working to simplify the processes of unit set development, like buying, selling, renting property. Mm. And, there's a huge number of companies kind of working in that space. But of course, kind of again being biased, I think the cutting edge and those that are moving and changing this fundamentally is the ones that kind of focus on completely changing the way we plan and design and also build or create the built environment. Yeah. And I think that's where the kind of lasting impact will be seen. Yeah. But there's a lot of efficiency gains yeah. that is being taken that a lot of companies are addressing that's also great. But I, I get excited by, it. of course, the the ones that want to change the processes completely. Mm. Do you have any examples apart from yourself? A lot of companies that I think succeed interesting, but I'm not sure kind of which of them will kind of succeed. There are a lot of ideas about either kind of building digital twins for the construction part, like Immerso or others, companies like that. Companies that want to make the process of making the planning part of like how you manage a project more efficient using AI, like Enplan mm. in the UK or, or Alice in the US. Mm. Uh, I think I think those are really cool. Yeah, yeah. But I'm um, uh, like they're, they're all early stage, right? Mm. And and you have like these more integrated players like Terra mm. that want to kind of uh, do the whole thing. And mm. um, I think all of those are cool efforts, mm. and those will kind of move the needle in seeing yeah. what, what will work. Yeah. Time will tell, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. What's the next big thing within real estate and tech? I guess it goes a little bit around what I've already been saying. Like, I, I obviously believe that that space maker and and changing the way we design is the next big thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. But other than that, I think real estate has really missed out on the tech and digitization. Like, it's it's been 
the same way, if you look at it kind of from a bird's eye view, it's, it hasn't changed since, since the 50s. Mm. So the next big thing for real estate, I think, is to go digital, mm. like being powered by, but hopefully jumping kind of the 80s and 90s of, that everyone else has been doing and kind of go to the latest tech directly. Mm. So being powered by cloud power, AI and, and analytics, like information, data, having insight. Mm. I think that's that's the big thing. Mm. All right. What skills do you think are important if you want to succeed as an entrepreneur? I think you need to have many skills for starters. And I've talked a little bit about these beliefs that I have. I, th I think you need humility and belief in teams. You need to be convinced that you can't do it yourself, I think, because it's, it's really important. But you also need to have a vision that you really, really believe in, and that's clear to others. You can't do this just because you think you'll, or at least I don't think it's a viable approach to look for just where to make a lot of money. It's where you can create real change for someone else that they'll be interested in, in buying, right? Because that will also give you the opportunity to attract talent that will help you because they want to also understand why you're doing this. And to kind of realize that you need an intense and maybe obsessive customer focus. And this is different from kind of saying that you believe in the customer. It's it's about really, really focusing on like putting the value of the value creation of customers kind of above your business plan. You need to change it if the customer is not getting value. I think domain knowledge is important. I think experience is important. I think perseverance mm. and kind of just working hard and also luck. Mm. Uh, it's always a lot of luck. And that's, I guess, that's part of humility, mm. right? It's timing and luck is something that you can't control. You might get unlucky. You might get lucky about where you're at at that time. Mm. Where would you refer people if they'd like to learn more about real estate trends, tech, digitalization, etc.? That's also an interesting question. Like the field is moving so fast. And I think the information landscape is still really fragmented. I haven't found kind of a really reliable sources that I follow that are kind of covering the space. There's a lot of experimentation going on. So I would actually send them to the large PropTech conferences first to kind of get started. I would recommend the future PropTech in London and the MIPIM PropTech kind of conferences. There are several to kind of get started. Mm. So actually the, the podcasts like this and, and also others are, are maybe the best attempts I've seen at kind of deep diving and trying to take kind of the time to understand the different like the different nuances, I guess, because the definition of PropTech is so wide that yeah. it kind of can be a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what final words would you like our listeners to remember from this talk? Hmm. Well, of course, kind of the enthusiasm for our mission is something I want others to kind of share. <laughs> so understanding there's a better way to design cities and that we start now and embrace change. There's a way to make the built environment part of the solution of creating like more sustainable cities. Mm. And I guess also for the entrepreneurs out there, focus on what the customer needs and also how you how we can attract the team and create the like the, the cross-functional kind of capabilities you need to to serve those needs is most important. Right. That's a great wrap up. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. Great. Thanks. Thanks.